0: Welcome to Southside Community Church. Enjoy our Sunday morning message. So a guy named Simon, who was a Pharisee, a religious leader at the time, um, invited Jesus to his house. And so Jesus went and he... um, Went to Simon's house, he reclined at the table, because at that time, it wasn't tables like we have today, where you sit on a chair, it was, they would sit on the ground, and the table was really low to the ground, and you'd put your feet kind of behind you, and you'd lean on the table like this, and so Jesus was doing that, and a lady walked into the house, this religious leader's house, and she was probably really intimidated and scared to do it, because it was the ESV, I think, says she was a woman of the city, And you can imagine what her reputation was. You can imagine what her vocation was. And she she found Jesus reclining at the table, and she just stood behind him, and she started to cry. And as her tears fell to Jesus' feet, she got down and, like, wiped her feet with her hair. And then she had brought with her an alabaster, um, a jar of alabaster oil, and she opened that and started to anoint Jesus' feet with with oils is an act of extravagant uh, worship. Well, Simon, it said in Luke 7, he said under his breath to himself. You know when people are kind of saying stuff about people, but you know they're talking about them. He just kind of said, man, if he was a prophet, he would know who she was. And he wouldn't allow this. Jesus said, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he said, um... Imagine there's a person who lends money to people. And to one person he lends 500 denarii, and another person he lends 50 denarii. And then he sees that the person can't pay him back, and he forgives them both the loan. Which one do you suppose would be more grateful? And Simon said, well, I suppose the person that owed more. And Jesus said, you judged wisely. And he said, and then it says he, he turned to this woman and faced her. And he was still talking to Simon, but he faced the woman. And he said, when I came to your house, Simon, you didn't offer any water for my feet, which was traditional hospitality, to wash their feet as they came into a home. And he said, but she's been washing my feet with her tears. And you didn't greet me with a kiss, which is another traditional... Um, ancient Near East thing. You kiss the person on the cheek when they come to your home. But she's been kissing my feet since I got here. And you didn't anoint my head with oil. But she anointed my feet with oil. She's been forgiven much, and so she loves much. But people who don't think they've been forgiven much don't love much. And then there was starting to be this... You know, this debate about forgiveness of sins because Jesus um, said to her, your sins are forgiven. And everyone's asking around the table, there's this conversation of, who is this that thinks that he's able to forgive sins and it's turning into a little bit of a debate which happens a lot around things that Jesus say when people are trying to figure out exactly how to interpret the things he's saying and doing. And so they're starting to talk about this and Jesus has mercy on this woman and doesn't make her stay and listen to the debate. He just gives her the forgiveness instead of talks about it. And so he looks at the woman as everyone's starting to chatter And says, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. And we're talking about the benefits of being a Christian today. And it starts with one really, really big good benefit. And that is, we are forgiven. And forgiveness means that God the Father looks at you through Christ. He looks at you and says... I find no fault in you. And that is the beginning point of every good thing that we receive from God. It's the highest good, it's the highest privilege. To be a disciple of Jesus means that you are forgiven because of the work of Jesus. And so we're in Ephesians 1. And today, I want to make sure we understand what we're going to call the logic of the gospel. How does the gospel work? And then we're going to talk about some more benefits of it. And what I mean by the logic of the gospel is who is God, who are we, and what's available to us in a relationship with God, because it's important it's actually possible to go to your church your entire life and never really be super clear on this answer. And it's important for me that we always have people in this room who are exploring what it means to be a Christian. People who aren't part of the spiritual family in that sense yet, that they're following Jesus, but who are at least open and curious to it. They might be stiff-arming Jesus, and that's okay. We're okay with that. We want people here to be able to listen to the message of the gospel without judgment, without feeling judged, without feeling condemned, and instead feeling loved and accepted. But we want everybody to understand the logic of the gospel. So whether you've been going to church all your life, it doesn't matter. Or if this is your first Sunday, doesn't matter. We all need to have a firm grasp on what this looks like, what this means, because it's central to our understanding of what being a disciple actually is. The gospel is central to that. What exactly does God want to give us, and what does he want to do for us, and how is that related to who he is? And I would go so far as saying if you don't understand the logic of the gospel, you probably don't have a very good reason to give people when they ask you why you're a Christian. You know, I mean, someone asks you, why are you a Christian? If you don't understand what we're talking about today, you're probably gonna be stumped, really. Um, I have to think about that, actually. I've never really thought about why I'm a Christian. Uh, because it helps me raise wholesome kids. You know, I like the positive message of Christian pop music. I don't watch rated R movies. It's pretty good life. Why are you a Christian? Are, are those the reasons why we follow Jesus? Is that why Jesus stayed on the cross? Ephesians 1.3 teaches us the logic of the real gospel. And that's what I want to talk about. Paul ascribes to God the characteristic of blessedness in Ephesians 1.3. And blessedness is the enjoyment of fullness and peace and rest and sufficiency. That's what it means to be blessed. Blessedness is the enjoyment of fullness and peace and rest and sufficiency. And think of those moments in your life that almost feel too good to be true. That's a taste of blessedness. An earthly version of blessedness. For me, it's like... A cozy night at home with the family, we have a movie night, I get my pajamas on, I get my sleeping bag and I set my sleeping bag right in the middle in front of the TV and i get my little glasses i have these little glasses. Some of you know because i've brought these over to your house and i'm not embarrassed by it. i have these little glasses that you can lay flat on your back and they have mirrors in them you can lay flat on your back and watch the tv that way and i'm just chilling like this watching with my mirrored glasses And you laugh but you're going to google it and you're going to want a pair because they're amazing like that to me is the blessed life i'm watching a movie with my family it's incredible sometimes um... Sarah and I have these moments, it's like deep time where you, it just feels timeless. We're, we're connecting at such a heart level, tending to one another's hearts, talking about something really profound and just energized by it. it feels, that feels like a moment. That's, this is what it means to, be, to live a blessed life. Or you're sitting in a circle with friends, you know, just shooting the breeze, not even talking about religious stuff, just being together. Caring about people and knowing they care about you. That's a pretty good feeling. Those moments are just a small taste of this blessedness we're talking about. The enjoyment of fullness and peace and rest and sufficiency. It's this character of blessedness that Paul ascribes to God in Ephesians 1-3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So that's the first part of the logic of the gospel that we need to really grip. That God has everything he needs to be completely satisfied and to be completely joyful and to be completely at peace forever. That's what his inner world looks like. God himself lives in a constant state of blessedness. But here's the good news of the gospel. He's not content just to keep that to himself because part of that blessedness is that he wants to share it with other people. So God wants to share that blessedness with us. So let's read the entire verse of Ephesians 1.3 and see this logic there. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Here's the logic of the gospel. God who has everything shares that with us in Christ Jesus. That's the gospel. And until we really begin to understand what God is offering us, we don't know what it means to be a Christian. And in our vacuum of understanding, in our inability to really give an answer for the hope that is in us, we begin to make up these weird things to try to define ourselves as Christians and define other people as not Christians. Like, you're either in or you're out. And we have these strange weird sometimes creepy things that we do because we don't understand what it really means to be a Christian that everything God has he gives us in Christ and so we do very strange things um, like make Christian theme parks and if you are really cruel and you go to Orlando actually it's closed down now but a couple years ago if you were really cruel you go to Orlando you don't You don't send your kids, you don't go with your kids to Disney World like everybody else. You take them to the Holy Land experience where you can get a selfie with Jesus. That's crazy. See, we we don't know what the gospel is, so we try to make up strange things to make sure that everybody knows we're Christians. We have our own pop music, which to me is a little bit just as crazy. We have our own movie industry we have our own little books that tells you all the businesses here's where all the Christians are that way you don't have to worry about people that aren't Christians it's a little strange I think the more we understand what Christianity is the less we feel the need to have those things as crutches in our lives we're disciples of Jesus because God, who has everything, shares that with us in Christ Jesus. And this is put very simply but powerfully in Ephesians 1.13 in four words, in him you also, which means that everything that's true about Jesus is now true about you. What is in Christ is now yours. What is Christ by nature is now yours by grace. He's given us everything. He's given us the kingdom. So let's talk for a little bit about what are some of the things that are included in everything. But it's pretty much everything. So we're not going to be able to be exhaustive. And it's kind of hard to even know where to begin. In verse 3, Paul calls it every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. So it's so comprehensive what God has given us in Christ that the Bible has to explain it in three tenses. It explains it in past tense, in present tense, and in future tense. He can't download all of it to us in one time. So Christ has... Blessed us, Christ is blessing us. Christ will bless us. That's what it means to be a Christian. You are on the receiving end of God's goodness for all of eternity, and some of it starts now. So that when you know people talk about last week, I think I said it's important to understand that you know we don't go to heaven when Jesus comes back. Jesus brings heaven to us and so it's important for us to stand that right now there's a little bit of heaven that's actually here today in this room it's in you you carry inside of you this particle of heaven on earth right now it's an intermingling that happens at the point of a Christian because you have the Spirit of God in you and where the Spirit of God is there is not only freedom but heaven And so what's available to us now? What are some of these spiritual blessings that God has given us in Christ? We, he's coming back and everything's going to be. We're going to receive it all at that moment. But what's available to us now? Let's talk about it. And one thing that I didn't put in your notes is you know, he changes you. Um, he actually makes you, you know, we talk about the fruit of the Spirit a lot, he makes you more loving and kind and gracious and forgiving and easy to be around, and less judgmental, and all sorts of really, really good things. And you know, he turns us into what Jesus is like. He gives us Jesus' personality. And every time the Bible talks about us becoming more like Jesus in the New Testament, it always uses the, the passive tense of the verb, which means that he's doing the heavy lifting. So he's doing it. We're not making ourselves more like Jesus. Part of the package deal is that he's making the fruit of the Spirit come alive in us. We're on the receiving end of even that. And another nuance of the fruit of spirit, we talk about it all the time, but here's something else, here's another way to think about it. If you wanna see if the fruit is genuine, if you wanna see if my fruit is genuine, like which is okay for you to wanna do since I'm a pastor, like don't don't see how I'm acting on Sunday morning because I can act for an hour and a half. You should ask my family, And you should ask the staff of this church because the people who are closest to you will see the fruit most clearly. That's why it's impossible for us to know where anyone's really at, just seeing each other on Sunday mornings. We have to be a little more involved. The fruit of the Spirit will be most experienced by those closest to you. If that's not true, then it's not the genuine article. Here's some other good things that we get. One, profound spiritual wisdom that can match the complexities of life life is complicated there's not easy answers but the gospel can match the complexity of this life it can answer everything it can help with everything now wisdom I say here is knowing the right thing to think do or say so that suffering decreases or the things not to think or do or say because just because you have a Bible verse doesn't mean it's the right time to use it. Doesn't mean it's the right way to use it. Doesn't mean that you're saying it with the right tone. You could have a Bible verse and be wrong. Uh, There's a book in the Old Testament, Job. I used to think it was Job. (laughs) It's Job, the guy's name. Um, this, this guy, Satan, just ravaged his life. He asked, he asked God for permission to really put it to him, and he made Satan's life feel like hell on earth. And he took his family, and he gave them sores all over. He got really sick, and everyone was cursing Jesus around him, I mean, God around him. And, and Job didn't do it for the longest time, and his friends came to comfort him and console him, and they were great friends until they started talking. And then God had to rebuke them for the things that they said. But here's the trip of that. Most of what Job's friends said was technically, theologically correct. But God still rebuked them because it wasn't wise. It wasn't loving. It wasn't kind, it wasn't merciful. You can say things that are true and be wrong. You can say things that are true and still be rebuked by God, apparently. We see it in the Bible. Just knowing the Bible isn't what makes us wise. Knowing how to use the Bible is what makes us wise. And you have to be able to read the situation. So, like, all of us parents have used this, right? What's the trump card for parents if a kid's acting out? What, what, do, we, what do we tell them? Does anyone want to take a guess? Who else has said it? What's that? <laughs> I'll eat your snacks. What's, what's the Bible version of I'll eat your snacks? <laughs> I don't even tell them, I just do it. I, the Bible version of that is honor your father and mother. You're supposed to honor your father and mother. I don't like the way you're treating me. You're supposed to honor your father and mother. I don't know if any parent has ever said that in a loving way. And if you're violating Ephesians 6.4 when you're telling your kid to honor your father and mother, then it's sin. And Ephesians 6.4 says, do not provoke your kid to anger. You see, we pick and choose. That's the problem with Christians. We pick and choose what works best for us. So I'll throw a verse at you, but it's, for, it's actually for me to teach you how to treat me better. That's a little close to home. Let's see what else we got. Um, How do you know if you're acting with godly wisdom? Well, the Bible actually tells us what the character of godly wisdom is. And it's summed up in one word, meekness. That's James 3.13. And James 3.17 gives us the specifics of the character of godly wisdom. It tells us, exactly what it looks like. So if someone's given you advice, you know what you're allowed to do? You're allowed to turn to James 3.17 and see, is this advice actually, does it fit the filter of what God tells me is godly wisdom? So let's read it. But the wisdom from above, so godly wisdom is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, I'm not slamming down, this is the final word, I'm not talking about it, we're done talking about it, this is how it is, that's the way it goes, I said it, we're done. No, no, you you don't get to do that. It's open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. That's what wisdom looks like. That's what wisdom feels like. And so use that verse when, as people are giving you advice, because we do, I don't know if you've noticed, we live in an age now where it's not enough for people to have opinion about, an opinion about their li- your life, they have to share that opinion with you about your life. There's a lot of people telling people how to live. We're, we're um, in, I'm reading family system theory right now, we are an anxious society, everybody reacting off of everybody else. It's, it's not helpful. But, man, we are convinced we have to tell everybody else how to live. So what this might look like for, um, you know, if you want to hold me accountable as a pastor, if someone's preaching, and, and, and if my attitude is, I'm just going to open the word and tell you like it is, and if you are triggered by what I say in any way, that's your problem. Because I'm just giving you the word. And if you have a problem with it, that's your problem. If you're triggered, that's your problem. No, that's my problem, because I'm not acting in love, and it's not peaceable, and it's not gentle, and it's not open to reason. So I'm sinning is what's happening, and you should call me on that if that happens. And I'll do the same for you. That's what we'll do for each other. We'll make sure that we're acting Christ-like toward one another, and we won't let each other get away with not acting Christ-like. Does that sound like a good deal? And there are thousands of small decisions we have to make every day, and the longer we walk in relationship with Jesus, the longer we learn to think like him, the longer we manifest who he actually is, and we become gentle and peaceable and you know, full of reasonableness. And there's not a book in the world big enough to be able to answer every decision you have to make even in a day to tell you exact instructions on what you have to do. So scripture actually... Um, When we are given the mind of Christ, as we read Scripture, it doesn't just give us an answer to every little situation. It tells us how to think and how to act and how to love well. And as we do that, we grow in wisdom. All right, next one. We also get a large spiritual family to provide a safety net of protection and resources if things go south. And this passage in Mark 10, 29 through 30 is it talks about that jesus said i think this is right after peter said well some of us have left pretty much everything i mean i was in a boat i had a fishing business with my dad it's probably pretty good and i left that so what's in it for us jesus said truly i say to you there's no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands which means some of us have to do that not everybody has to leave everything but some people do some people you become a Christian and there's an immediate divide in your family, you and everybody else. Some of you know what it feels like. For my sake and for the gospel, who will not also receive a hundredfold now in this time. So you have to leave things, I'll make it up a hundredfold. That's what Jesus is saying, in this time. He's not talking about the he's talking about now, houses and brothers, and sisters, and mothers, and children, and lands with persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life, so it'll just get better. So he's probably talking to people that maybe there's three other people in their family, and they turn to Jesus, and they start following him, and his family doesn't like the reputation of Jesus, and so they're pulling away, and they're dividing themselves off from this, this, this young man who's a disciple of Jesus, or this, or this young woman who's a disciple of Jesus, and Jesus says to that disciple, you lost three, I'm gonna give you hundreds because now you're part of a larger family. In a very real way, if things went south in any one of your lives and you let us know, you have a church, you have 130 people around you that'll make sure you eat, that'll make sure you don't sleep outside, that'll make sure your kids can get to school, that'll make sure that you're taken care of. That's what we do. We'll help you find work. That's what Jesus is saying. You got a large support structure here. There's no reason for anyone to be in need in this room. The next one, freedom from defending or guarding your reputation or correcting other people's misunderstandings about you. And if you guys, like, really, if you really think about this, this is enormous. You don't have to worry about what people think about you anymore. Has anyone ever assumed the worst about you? Has anyone ever judged you? Has anyone ever slandered you? Has anyone ever misunderstood or misread something that you did and you get this compulsive feeling like you have to make sure that they're not offended? You have to explain yourself. You have to make sure. I I wasn't there because I was doing this. I mean, I was doing something really good or I didn't. I mean, there's all sorts of ways that we feel like we have to manage what other people are thinking about us. And we don't have to do that anymore as Christians. That's a form for me of neuroses. It's it's not healthy. It's nourishing a really bad side of me when I start doing that. I read somewhere, that this won't make sense to a lot of us, but I, it's, it's a weird statement, and I had to really think about it, but I read somewhere this week that all anxiety is your false self asking to be nourished. Whenever you're anxious, there's this false self in you that is saying, protect me, protect me. Make sure they understand what you were doing. Make sure you explain yourself. Make sure you walk on eggshells around this person. And you don't have to do that anymore because Jesus is gonna take care of that too. He's gonna bring everything to light. He's gonna bring everything to the surface. He's gonna expose every motive one day. And then you can say, see, that's not what happened, but I didn't explain it to you because I just didn't care. But Jesus did for me, so there. That'll be fun. And that's in 1 Corinthians 4, 5. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time before the Lord comes. Who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart? Then each one will receive his commendation from God. You know why you should pray for your enemies? Because one day Jesus is going to tell them, you were slandering and they were praying for you. How does that feel? That's why most of what we do as Christians should be done in secret. I mean, we're just seeing a little above the iceberg when we see good works, but most of what we do is hidden. Another one, freedom to have a single-minded focus on the kingdom, knowing that God will take care of the rest. That's Matthew 6.33, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. That's pretty good. I mean, that frees us up from worrying about everything else except the kingdom. If you have a single-minded focus on the kingdom, God says, I'll take care of everything else. You don't have to worry about it. I will take care of you. It's a good deal. But the ace up our sleeve is the thing that's next. This is as good as it gets. I mean, let's just read it. Whatever happens, it works out for our good. That's Romans 8:28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to His purpose. I mean, Romans eight is filled with these incredible truths and promises. It's unbelievable. Like Paul's trying to really nail it and help us understand. What the gospel is all about, and all the goodness we receive from it, and it's, and it's like he finally he's getting towards the end of it, and he just says, "How can I make this like clear for everybody?" Like I don't know how to say it any better than everything that happens to you will turn to good. How better can it possibly be? Everything that happens to you will work together for your good. That's comprehensive. There's not one thing that can happen to you that God can't turn for good. And we see this in Scripture. I mean, if you read through Scripture, it's full of dramatic reversals. That's that's actually what Scripture is. It's one dramatic reversal after another. This looks really, really, really bad. There's no way God can redeem this situation. Boom. God speaks a word, and it instantly turns. That's what he does. That was the cross, Satan's looking at Jesus hanging on the cross, thinking that he won. And that was the, act- that was the decisive blow that actually defeated Satan and darkness and death. That's all God does is turn things into good, which takes the pressure off of us of making every right decision. There's other promises too, and... There's hundreds and thousands, and there's an infinite number of good things that God wants to give us, and you should search them out. You should look at Scripture and find them for yourself and memorize them and think about them, and then the things of this world will kind of lose their glitter, you know? Psalm 8411, for the Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. Did you guys hear that? God bestows honor to you. You don't have to honor yourself. You don't have to be your own publicist. You can be quiet and go about your day and God will honor you in his way, in his time. It frees you from all the energy we spend doing that. There's a million of them. So if someone asks you, why are you a Christian? Um, Don't invite them to the Holy Land experience. Just say, look up any promise in the Bible. And that's yours too. In Christ. It's all yours. And you can either receive it now or someday soon. Let's pray. Thank you for listening. Check out our website at southsideworcester.com.